If we have not yet met or you're perhaps visiting for the first time this morning, we want to welcome you to the gathering here at Veritas Church. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here and would be delighted to meet you. I usually post right on the front entrance there. So please make a point to say hello. Introduce yourself to me on the way out. Uh, let me know how you heard about this church, maybe invited by a coworker or a friend, um, but we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. This morning, we are going to turn our attention to the book of Colossians, beginning a new series over the course of the next several months, considering God's word in the book of Colossians. If you are using one of the Bibles that are there in the seat back in front of you, you'll find uh, the book of Colossians on page 924. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, let's begin reading and hearing God's word. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace. From God our Father. We, give, we always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you pray with me as we consider God's word together? Our God and Father, we look to you this morning as the one who is the Father of all lights, you are the one who delights in giving good gifts, that you are the storehouse and the treasure of all wisdom, that you delight to give mercy, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that in you there is no lack, that within you you have all sufficiency, and that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, in whom is all sufficiency, the one who is supreme over all things. And so we bring our lives under the headship of this one, our Lord Jesus. We recognize him to be the head of the church, the one who is the distributor, the giver of all the good gifts that you have for us in yourself, the one who is the perfect mediator between God and man, the one who stands before us this morning as our perfect high priest who intercedes on our behalf, who testifies of the Father's good pleasure towards us because of the greatness of the gift that we have in the gospel. Lord, we pray in light of who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us in your Son that you would cause these immense truths that are so heavenly-minded and yet so necessary for our earthly good to be born and pressed upon our lives that they might bear much fruit. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would peel away any of the scales that might be on our eyes, hindering us from seeing this risen Christ. Lord, as we begin this study, that you would cause the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ 
to be known among us and in that knowledge that it would transform the way that we live our lives and we relate to one another in the way that we even anticipate your return. Lord, we're asking and praying that you would cause your good seed of your gospel to bear gospel fruit among us as your people. In Christ's name, amen. I read this week that the global dietary supplement industry is a $70 billion a year market. By the very definition of the word supplement, that means it's an industry that's built upon either the diagnosis or perhaps the assumption that normal food intake is not enough. And it means that there is some deficiency that requires you to supplement your normal dietary intake with added vitamins and minerals and proteins. Now, have your opinions of what you may or may think of this supplement industry. Maybe considered a fad by some, but in principle, this whole idea of supplement is not new. The whole idea of the assumption of insufficiency and needed sufficiency is most certainly not new. In fact, the entire book of Colossians has been written in part because Christians assumed that Christ is not enough. There were certain well-intending disciples of Jesus who longed for, for greater spiritual growth. We know from this book and reading between the lines that they longed for, for greater spiritual endurance that they longed for greater power over sin. And at the same time, there were certain false teachers who were gladly and proudly teaching that while Christ is necessary for your salvation, he is not sufficient to meet your needs. The Apostle Paul, writing somewhere around the early 60 ADs, he writes to correct this false teaching and to affirm the supremacy of Christ the sufficiency of Christ, and the centrality of the gospel to all things. Now, it's worth noting as we begin into this book that Paul did not establish the church in the city of Colossae. He, in fact, never visited the town before writing this letter. But after Paul preached in Ephesus, there was a man named Epaphras who heard the gospel and then returned to his hometown with this message and began to teach it. And Epaphras has now returned back to Paul, most likely when Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And he tells Paul of the good work that's happening in the church at Colossae, the good work of the gospel, as well as some of the concerns that he has for the church. It's a wonderfully rich letter. Packs a punch in just four short chapters. You could go home this afternoon and read it out loud in about 15 minutes. And at the heart of this instruction, at the heart of this letter, is this concern for the new life that we have in Christ as Christians. It's a life that begins and ends with God. It's a life that's given by God, and it's the life that we lived, we live for God and for His glory. And it's a letter that you may have noticed that begins with thankfulness. It begins with the reflection upon the good work that has begun in this church, and the effective working of the gospel that is bearing fruit among these saints, those who are faithful brothers in Christ, as Paul mentions. If you wanted to understand really the, the main argument of this opening section, the main thrust of what Paul is getting at in his introduction, if you want to understand some sense of 
where, where all of this is going in the first eight verses, there's kind of one thought that is driving all of this forward. And it is that the fruit-bearing gospel produces faithful people through faithful ministers. We're going to see this work itself out just considering the testimony of their fruit that Paul has heard of. He speaks to the good seed that's actually producing this fruit. This fruit. And then lastly, the faithful minister that's laboring for this fruit. The testimony of the fruit, the good seed producing the fruit, and the faithful minister laboring for the fruit. Look back at verse 1 and let's consider this testimony that Paul has heard of concerning their fruit. The introduction, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Essentially, word has come to Paul and to Timothy of the good fruit that is being born among the saints at the church of Colossae. They've heard of this faith, and they write specifically back, rejoicing in a couple aspects of this good gospel fruit. First of all, notice that he gives thanks for their faith in Christ. Of all the things that he could give thanks for, and of all the things that he heard of from Epaphras, he says, we thank God for your faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is the defining mark of Christianity. If maybe you've become confused or muddled in, in what it means to be a Christian or you've assumed certain things, you could boil it down and say Christianity at its heart has to do with faith in Christ. That's probably the best place that you can start to begin to understand what does it mean to be a Christian. By that we mean not just simply a bare knowledge of Christ, that, that he was a man or that he was a good man or even that he was the Son of God. Faith that places your trust in him alone for salvation. Our confession, the second London Confession of Faith, in chapter 14 has a wonderfully helpful section on what is faith, particularly relevant in our day and age when faith can become redefined in so many different ideas and assumptions. It's chapter 14, paragraph 2. It says, The principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. I rejoice when I hear of your faith in Christ. This is important because by nature, we put our ultimate trust, by default, from the time that we are born, we put our ultimate trust in things like what we can feel, what we've learned, what I know, or experience. How many times do you hear that? Well, in my experience, and then we go on to make a, a truth statement, or what we can accomplish. But the primary fruit of genuine biblical conversion is that we turn from these false ultimate trusts and false ultimate saviors and temporary confidences and we turn towards Christ and we place our confidence in him. I rejoice when I hear of your faith in Christ. 
Specifically, that we are putting our trust, our confidence in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and his continual intercession for us. What this means and how this has worked out is that faith can be heard in the lives of one another. Faith can be heard in how we speak often of him. And we speak gladly of him, specifically of his grace, of his mercy, how we speak of his sacrifice for sin, his steadfast love, and how he stands as the faithful shepherd watching over us even in this circumstance, that we hear of how others speak of Christ and their faith in him, and that faith is made, made, made auditory. But we can also see faith in others. When we watch one another walk through trial or affliction, or when we mourn or when we weep, but even in our mourning or our weeping that our ultimate confidence remains in Christ because he's never failed us and that he's always good. And so faith can even be heard in the midst of situations like that. And so this sort of faith is worthy of giving thanks for because it's not natural to us. It's not natural to rejoice in suffering. But only a Christian can rejoice in suffering not because they're they love pain and torture, but because they love the one who's sovereign over all things and they trust that even in this, he is good and he's working all things according to his plan. So I have faith in him even in this. But Paul also rejoiced, giving thanks for their love for the saints. He'd heard of this as well. One of the things that Augustine loved to teach and write about was this subject of disordered loves. You can read more about this in book two of his confessions. And don't think of it as a man going to a priest offering confession. Think of it as just you're reading his journal. You're reading his thoughts on his conversion. Book two, he, he speaks a little bit about these, this understanding of disordered loves. The essential summary of what Augustine's getting at is that we live our lives as expressions of love. He works through the will and the mind and this outworking of love. And what he's trying to unpack there is that because of sin, in our natural state, our loves are rearranged and more specifically actually disordered, compelling us to love what we ought to despise, and oftentimes to despise what God said is good and what we ought to love. And so this often works out in our lives where we end up using people and loving things, when we should actually do the opposite using things for God's glory and loving people. But we do so because of our loves being completely disjointed. And one of the great indicators that the gospel is bearing fruit in our lives is when our loves are realigned and rightly ordered according to God's loves. What does he love? What does he despise? What does he call good? What does he call evil? And more specifically, this becomes visible when we are intentionally and sacrificially loving others. Not just an ethereal idea of they're such a loving person, but I can say they are loving in the way that they're loving this person. It becomes very tangible. When the grace of God renews and transforms a soul, we can expect that there will be a growing love for others, especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That there is a growing love for one another. And this love is particularly known when it's willing to inconvenience itself. When it's willing to sacrifice comfort 
for the service or the good of another. That's the sort of love that the Bible's speaking of. Not sentimentality, not a gushy greeting card, but an actual tangible expression of self-sacrifice for the good of someone else. John 13, 34, Christ would tell his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Why Christ could command this is because it's the evidence of grace in which God works into a new creation. That we, by God's grace and the works of regeneration, have begun to love what God loves. And the will of God is revealed in the law of God. And when Jesus says, this is my commandment, we know this is the will of God. And he says, and I have worked this in you to love one another as I have loved you. And so for this very same reason, Paul is giving thanks. He's rejoicing not only of your faith in Christ, but it is evident of your love one for another. Faith and love, notice also in verse 5, that it's, it's because of the hope in heaven. Notice in verse 5 that Paul is not speaking of their inner attitude of hope within the Colossian saints, but the objective reality of hope. The hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Just what is this heavenly hope? He's going to get into it. Turn over to Colossians 3 just for a second. The heavenly hope is this. If then, or since, you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here, in context, in Paul's writing, he's speaking in contrast to what is earthly and below compared to what is above. We could summarize it this way. The heaven above is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, as he said. And his followers, who are united with Christ and have been raised up with Christ, as he'll write to the Ephesians, have also been seated with him in the heavenlies. So for this reason, Paul is saying, seek the things that are above, where our true and ultimate home is, and our true country is, or where we would say to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly await Christ. So the heavenly hope for the Christian is this reality of what awaits every believer. The objective reality that fuels our faith and our love. And for the Christian, this this heavenly hope, it actually shapes earthly living. All that we have in Christ, all that God has done for us in His grace, that we await the fulfillment of all of that promise That objective hope transforms our faith and our love. Because this is true, I am living this way today. And Paul says, I give thanks for that. It is clear that this objective hope of what God has done in Christ has worked itself out into your lives and so that it is apparent that your faith is in Christ and that your love towards all the saints is made clear. Now, talking about this hope and the hope of heaven, even the anticipation and the eager hope of heaven, friends, please know that it's more than just the mere blessings of heaven. Maybe you think of different aspects of what you long for in this heavenly reality, and there certainly are many. 
to be free from pain, to be free from cancer, to be free from sin, to be free from the daily assault of an enemy who seeks to lead us in not only to temptation but into rebellion against God, to be free from all of that. Or how about on the positive? Not just to be freed from those things, but to be filled with delight, to actually be filled with contentment. How often do you loathe the fact that your heart constantly goes into the state of discontentment? But one day I will be perfectly content and the reality of what I have been given and who I am will settle into the soul and I will be perfectly content. Even if we were to have those blessings alone, even if we were to have all of those aspects of heaven, we must be careful and say that is not the definition of what heaven is. Richard Sibbs puts it very specifically in his sermon, Christ is best. Heaven is not heaven without Christ. It's better to be in any place with Christ than to be in heaven itself without him. All delicacies without Christ are but as a funeral banquet. Where the master of the feast is away, there is nothing but solemnness. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. So when we're speaking about this hope of heaven and where we long for all of those realities of what that will mean, ultimately what we are saying is that our hope is that we're actually united fully, completely in resurrected bodies to the one who brings all of these blessings. They're not detached blessings. They're the fruit of actually being united to Christ. The faithful Christians of Colossae had a testimony of faith, of love, and hope. And this marked them out as the cause for Paul's and, and Timothy's cause for, for thankfulness. How much of your prayers are filled with thankfulness for the fruit in the lives of others? I think oftentimes we give thanks for what we get. That's the easy kind of garden variety thankfulness. But have you been struck by how often in the scriptures that biblical thankfulness and the model of thankfulness is giving thanks for the glory that God gets through others? How much of my prayers are filled with thankfulness that the glory God gets through the fruit of others? In order to pray that way, it's going to require a few things of us. For one, it's going to require that we know others well enough to see it. I can't give thanks for what I don't know. And secondly, that we're mindful of the very things that actually bring God glory. What are the categories that I'm actually looking for that I could say, I give thanks to God for your... What is it? What is it that brings God glory that we would be looking for to fuel our prayers of thankfulness to say, God... Thank you for the good fruit that's being born in Jim's life as he walks through cancer, and yet, Lord, he remains faithful, trusting in you, confident that you are good, submitting his circumstances to your good pleasure. That is a testimony of your grace. Thank you for, that, for working that in his life. 
How might God grow us as a church in this mark of thankfulness? How might he be calling you and convicting you of this today? The testimony of their fruit. At the middle of verse 5 also speaks to the good seed that is producing fruit. The good seed that is producing fruit. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world as it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What Paul is saying here is that the message of the gospel is the transformative power that is producing the fruit among them and in all the world. And notice what Paul says about this. It's the good seed that's producing fruit because, number one, because it's a true message of good news. That's what he says there in the end of verse 5 and 6. Notice the emphasis upon hearing there. Did you catch this? It's actually repeated three times in these these verses. Notice the emphasis on hearing in verse 5. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And then verse 6. Since the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth. I think this is yet another reminder for us that the gospel message comes primarily to us as an auditory announcement because the means that God has ordained to spread this message throughout his world is through the preaching, the speaking, the teaching, exhorting, pleading, and explaining of the scriptures, that it's an auditory announcement. I think of Titus chapter 1 in his introduction and encouraging Titus. He says in verse 3, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Or perhaps your mind's already gone to Romans 10. As Paul is laboring to, to make this great point in verse 11 of chapter 10, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Good news. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Good news. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. He then asks the question, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's all over scripture. The primary means by which God has intended that this good news would be spread abroad is through the auditory announcement of the preaching, exhorting, teaching, pleading, and explaining of the scriptures. If you're not specifically clear on what I mean, what this good news is, this would be really important for you to be clear on. The wonderfully good news that Paul is talking about is that Even though we have all sinned against God, he has been nothing but good to us. We, by the nature of the fact that you are alive, the fact that you are born, that means that you've actually joined in Adam's rebellion. Our first parents, given God's word, 
but chose to believe that God's word is not trustworthy, sufficient, or that it is not good. And that you and I, we have lived as if God is not trustworthy. As if he isn't good. As if we know better. Because of that, God would actually be perfectly consistent in himself and perfectly just to damn you and I eternally. To give us what we've earned. To give us what we deserve. But what we read is that in God's amazing mercy, the Father sent the Son. The Son voluntarily laid His life down on the cross in the place of all of those that would turn to Him and place their confidence in Him. And that God raised Him from the dead, receiving His sacrifice for sin. So because of that, what that means is we can now repent of our sin and know forgiveness and know this new life that God intends for his image bearers, both now and forever in a renewed creation. Paul says this is the message that has gone forth that you've heard and it's bearing fruit. This is good news. This is good news if you've lied to your parents and you've deceived them. This is good news if you're constantly deleting your browsing history or finding loopholes through protective software. This is good news if you are wrecked by shame, by guilt, by fear of man, by bitterness, by anger. This is good news for that because of what it proclaims not only of your sin but about God and his mercy. The heart of this message is news, and it is good news, and it is bearing fruit. And that's the second point of what Paul says here. It's exponentially effective message. Notice the emphasis in verse 6, that this message is bearing fruit and is increasing, not only among the Colossian church, but Paul says the whole world. This is happening you, to you locally but this is happening all over. The gospel is good seed and it produces fruit that grows exponentially. And friends, we should expect this. The gospel is good seed that not only produces fruit, but produces exponential fruit in where and how it grows. What I find interesting and fascinating is that this language of bearing fruit and increasing here in verse 6, it's not unique to Paul. He's actually picking up on something that's been promised and fulfilled in Scripture. He's picking up on something that actually goes back to Genesis 1. Something that God told Adam. Genesis 1.28. See if any of this sounds familiar. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, what we see in Genesis 1 is that it was a mandate for Adam to reflect God's image. God created Adam and Eve with the moral, spiritual, volitional, rational abilities to subdue, to rule, and to fill the entire earth with the presence of the glory of God. That was the mandate that they were given. If Adam obeyed, the reward would belong to him and to all those he represents. If Adam had obeyed, 
the fruitfulness and the multiplication would not have stopped at Eden, but would have continued to fulfill and extend as they continue to be fruitful and multiply to the ends of the earth. What that means, in other words, is that creation would reach this consummation, which there would really be no distinction between heaven and earth, because all earth would be just as much as the dwelling place of God, as we know it was in Eden, as communion with him in heaven would be. Mankind would dwell with God, be happy and holy. This fruitfulness would extend throughout all the earth. And as glorious as this thought is, what we read, what followed was not obedience, but disobedience. You know from just the week that you live that this hasn't happened. Happiness and holiness does not fill the earth. It's not what fills our newsfeed. What God declared in Genesis 1 has come about. It's a curse because of Adam's sin. Cut off in our natural state from fellowship with God. But the concern for the fruitfulness, the sort of fruitfulness that fills the earth, has not been abandoned. For where the first Adam failed... The second Adam, our Lord Jesus, has been faithfully triumphant. What the scriptures announce that he is establishing a new creation. He sent forth forth his word where all those that are cursed through faith in him are actually restored. And he blesses with mercy and kindness. His word goes forth announcing the forgiveness of sin, restoration, communion with the triune God. That Jesus Christ, the second Adam now, is the representative and the federal head of all of his people in the new covenant, and that this word of truth is going out into all the world. It's bearing fruit and increasing. What Adam failed to do, our Lord Jesus has been faithfully triumphant to do, and what the Colossian church was experiencing and Paul was giving thanks for was the fruit of this good news, bearing fruit and increasing. Just think about what that means for us today. The expression of this global fruit this very day, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath. Faithful saints gather to exalt Christ today in Beijing, in Cape Town, in Cameroon, Cambodia, Bangladesh, New York, and Nepal. Saints as a result of this good seed and the gospel fruit that's going forth and bearing fruit, not only here, but all over the world. All because the risen Christ announced, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Because that is true, the fruit in the Colossian church is true, and the gospel fruit continues on today. The good fruit of the gospel is increasing here, in this church. How might it continue to go forth? If it has come here, and if it is bearing fruit here, how might it continue to multiply? Think along in the categories of your own home. Where might you long to see gospel fruit be born? Perhaps in your workplace. Perhaps in the sending of church planters. Perhaps in the sending of missionaries. Pray for fruit. Because the good seed of the gospel produces exponential fruit. 
testimony of their fruit, the good seed producing fruit, but we need to also consider the faithful minister laboring for fruit. Look back at verse 7. He says all of this and then says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has, been, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul is giving thanks for the gospel fruit among this church. He recognizing, recognizes that this fruitful, growing message came by the labors of this man, Epaphras. Now notice the connection that Paul makes between their fruit and Epaphras' labors. One thing he says is that faithful ministers are the means that God uses. Notice the connection of what he says. You heard this because you learned it. What this tells us is that the gospel didn't just fall down from the sky in the city of Colossae. That an angel didn't just show up and announce good news, though God could have done that. God sent a man who heard the gospel in Ephesus and returned to Colossae and began to teach it. And a church was established. And gospel fruit began to grow. Faith in Christ, love for the saints. You learned this by Epaphras. Faithful ministers are the means which God uses. What this means is it's this biblical understanding that God gives servants of the word as gifts to the church. They're the means by which God is ordained to proclaim and expound and teach his word to his people. This is really the essence of Ephesians chapter 4. Hopefully a portion that if you're a Christian you're familiar with as you're growing in your understanding of how the church of God is strengthened to do the glory of God, to bring God glory and to, to fulfill his purposes. Listen for the language of Paul when he talks about gifts being given to the church for the good of the church. Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Faithful ministers are the means that God uses to equip and strengthen his church. Baptist Catechism, question 94. I believe it's one of the questions that are on the back of the, the sermon card for the upcoming sermons for the next three months. Question 94. How is the word of God made effectual, meaning bear fruit unto salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation, i.e., Ephesians 4.11. Faithful ministers are the means that God uses. And so what this means is that the role among, of faithful ministers among fruitful con, uh, congregations cannot be overstated. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
The gospel is the effective power that transforms lives, that reorders our loves, that causes faith in Christ and love for all the saints because of the hope in heaven. The gospel announces and accomplishes all of this. And yet, God in his wisdom has ordained a means to bring this about. Church, if this is true, that the gospel is this good and is exponentially effective, and God has ordained a means by which the church is strengthened to be built up and accomplish the Great Commission, then what that means is that we ought to be praying for the ministry of the Word and for faithful ministers of the Word. And while this has much to do with our corporate gathering and what's happening now of explaining and proclaiming the Word of God, it's not limited to this gathering. Along this same vein of God giving gifts to his church and faithful pastors and teachers, pray not just for this gathering and the ministry of the word here, but pray for all of our elders that they would be faithful ministers to bring the word of God over a lunchtime meetup, over morning coffee and exhortations, as we open up our homes, as we meet with other men in the church. Faithful ministers, the means that God uses. But what Paul also says is that faithful ministers are servants. To hear that you're the means that God intends to use for the glory of the church to accomplish his purposes may have the unhelpful effect of puffing up your head with a bunch of hot air, beginning to think that people suddenly owe you something. Well, I'm the means that God uses. But that sort of nonsense is abruptly deflated when you keep your eyes on the text. Because verse 7 plainly says, he's a beloved fellow servant. What's the true design for faithful Christian ministry? Well, when we open up our New Testament, we find and discover that it's especially and most importantly a service. The first and greatest minister is our Lord Jesus. And these are his words. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But not so with you, Luke 22. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This means that every gospel minister takes his cues from the Lord Jesus. The willingness to sacrifice self unto the service of others is the distinctive feature of ministerial greatness. The people do not exist for the pastor, but the pastor for the people. And he is to lose himself in their service for their benefit. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 comes to mind for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, don't make the mistake here of thinking that 
pastoral ministry is just some higher form of discipleship where they are just this guru of servanthood. And that's amazing that pastors are to be servants. Go read 1 Timothy 3. Read the qualifications for an elder. And notice how they are explicitly ordinary. With the exception of one requirement for elders, it's basically the description of what every disciple of Jesus is called to. That means elders are essentially just role models for the church. They're exemplary Christians. They're to serve kind of as a model to say, it's not perfect, but they're, they're blameless in the sense you, you don't find any glaring omissions. And if you want to know kind of what this looks like, look to so-and-so. You'll see a good example of that. You'll probably be helped by that. So if that's true, what that means is that all the saints are to be servants. The exemplary servanthood of faithful gospel ministers is meant to reflect what faithful members are to look like. But what Paul also says here of this man Epaphras is that faithful ministers also labor in the word of prayer. They labor in word and prayer. Now, this distinction of faithful ministers as, serf- as servants, it's, it's important, but it's worth asking in service to what? Okay, they're, they're servants. I see that. They're, they're compelled to be that. The teaching of the Lord Jesus would say that. But what, what kind of service should a church expect a pastor to drop everything by serving others, by helping paint their house or fix the brakes on their car? or taking them to doctor's appointments. Well, a pastor may gladly be willing to do so. The focus of his service is primarily to labor in the ministry of prayer in the Word. Paul calls Epaphras a faithful minister of Christ. He is a servant to the church and a minister of Christ on their behalf. That means he waits upon Christ and takes his orders from him. The chief shepherd has overwatch and directs his under shepherds according to his wise plan. And the plan that the chief shepherd has laid out is for his ministers to labor in prayer in the word. The apostles set the tone for this in Acts chapter 6, noting that they would be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word and that others would need to be chosen among them in order to ensure that the various needs of this growing church were going to be met. And Christ has gifted his church with those devoted to the word and to to prayer so that it would be their primary focus as to how they serve the church. Not surprisingly, we see this here even in Epaphras, that he labored in word and prayer. It's there in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, this gospel came to them, was bearing fruit, because in part Epaphras was laboring in prayer in order to teach them, and God was using those means to build them up. Okay, he was a book guy, but was he a prayer guy? Go to chapter 4. Might get lost in some of the closing remarks, a bunch of names that may be hard to pronounce. Colossians 4, verse 12. He writes to the church and says, Epaphras, who's one of you, again, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, 
struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, for those in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. Never underestimate the role of faithful ministers among fruitful congregations. They are God's means to bring about the fruit of the gospel among God's people. And if this is so, then we would be wise to pray that God would raise up more laborers among us. If faithful elders are a gift to God's church, then let's pray that God would graciously give us as many gifts as he would delight to give us insofar they are laboring to ensure that the gospel goes forth for exponential fruit here and around the world. If that's God's aim and that's God's means, then we would be very wise to pray that God would just gift us according to his plan. So very specifically, pray for faithful ministers here at Veritas Church. Ask that God would give us faithful elders. Expect that he would give them. That's what it means to ask and to seek and to knock, to pray and believe. If this is what he said, that he wants to do, that he's gracious, full of wisdom, he's a loving father, pray and expect. He's going to give us good gifts. And thirdly, encourage these men as you see them. Encourage them to consider eldership as you see them faithfully leading others in the word, discipling and praying. That kind of sounds like, have you ever considered serving as an elder here? I see so much good fruit in your life of what I see God shaping and using in regards to what it means to be a pastor. Maybe it's not now, but have you ever considered that in your near future? Those are good conversations to have. Pray for them, expect them, and then encourage these men as we see God answer our prayers. And church, we have great reason to give thanks this morning because God has left himself a faithful testimony in this church in the 15 years of her existence that he's been gracious enough to give us a good history of men who love his word and who love his people. So let's pray that God would continue to do that and do that abundantly, to do that according to his design. So what we're saying is that the fruit-bearing gospel produces faithful people through the service of faithful ministers. Faithful Christian living has everything to do with hearing and responding to the good news that's found in God revealed in Christ. It's a life that begins and ends with God. It's a life that is given by God. It's a life that's lived for God and for His glory. And the centerpiece of this life has everything to do with our union with Christ. And the risen Christ, whether you realize it or not, continues to speak this morning. That's the essence of Romans 10 that we read about. The voice that goes forth is the scriptures, and it's the voice of Christ speaking to us this morning in his word. Testifying of the grace of God and truth, that sinners become saints, death comes to life, that captors in darkness are brought into the kingdom of his son, as Paul's going to say. So we remind ourselves, this good news, it's, it's effective, that it always brings about the purposes for which God sends it forth. If all of this is true, 
I need to ask you one question. Have you known this kind of change in your life? Do you call yourself a Christian? Have you seen this sort of change in your life? Faith in Christ. Love for others. Delight in the gospel. Where you see those evidences, give thanks to God. Where you see it in others, give thanks to God for the fruit being born in them. If you're unsure, have I known this kind of change in my life? Don't simply think of what others might say of you or what you would want others to say of you. What would God say of you? Because he knows the truth. Do you know the sort of change that comes through the good news of the gospel? By that we mean where you know that your sin deserves wrath, and yet it's paid for by the atoning blood of Christ's death, and that your life now united to Christ, assuring you of forgiveness, cleansing, renewal, acceptance, not on the basis of what you've earned, but on the basis of what you've been given by grace through faith, in God. Do you want this sort of life where you can know all of the guilt and the shame, all of the remorse and the regret assures me of forgiveness and cleansing, renewal, and acceptance? Every single one of us should be responding by saying, yes, that's what I want. The scriptures are very plain at this point. When we say, yes, that's what I want, then they call us to say then, Repent and believe. Turn from whatever you've been trusting in or running from and turn towards Christ, accepting, resting, and receiving Him alone is all your confidence and your forgiveness, your cleansing, and your renewal. And friends, if you've already experienced something of this in your life, you're giving thanks where you can see, Lord, thank you that I, I, you've called me to put faith in you and, and I'm trusting you. You've grown me in this love for others. Then hear Paul's words this morning. Hear him cheering you on. Hear him in confidence rejoicing. I give thanks. Because that's the heart of the Father. I give thanks for this good fruit among you. And keep going is the essence of this. This gospel fruit that continues to bear fruit. That continues to continue to spread. That even until death that he will show himself faithful to us, and that he is most certainly sufficient for us. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the gospel that has come to us, that we have heard, that we've received, and even in the ways that we can see that your gospel is bearing fruit among us. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would turn us from all those things that would be supplementary, that would intend to accomplish what you and you alone can accomplish. Turn us towards the glory and the goodness of your Son that we might be satisfied in Him, found accepting, resting, and receiving all that He is and all that He extends to us in mercy. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would continue to cause this wonderful gospel fruit to bear up here among us, to spread exponentially, and Lord, that you would use us, your church, and your grand and good plan to bring the gospel to all nations, we pray. Amen.